Psalm 51. As we turn there, I thought it might be helpful for you to know kind of what the plan is for Sunday mornings. Obviously, we're coming down the home stretch of John, and uh, we'll be, Lord willing, finishing John next Sunday, uh, which is a point of joy for some and a point of deep sadness for others. I think I would be in the sadness camp. I'd love to park the rest of my ministry career, I think, in that book. But we cannot do that. We need to move on to the whole counsel of God. So uh, we will be finishing John this coming Sunday, Lord willing, and then have missions conference, and then Rocky Wyatt will be here to get a wonderful providential break from me. Uh, and then um, in November, before Thanksgiving, I'm going to uh, address topically from Scripture, obviously, two issues that I think uh, we don't think a ton about. Uh, one, we probably don't practice much, and that is fasting. And so I'm going to ask the question, should I fast? And try to answer that biblically. And then the next Sunday, I'll address the question of should I give? And I think we do that, but I don't know that we think as much about that as we ought. Um, so I'm going to try to address that in November. And then I'm taking two weeks off to uh, uh, finish out a part of my vacation. So I'll have two weeks, uh, end of November and then early December. But I will be out of the pulpit and have some men filling in for us. Grant Bird will be here with us to preach, and then Bruce will be preaching one of those Sundays as well. Uh, and then we'll do a Christmas series as we head into December, preparing for uh, our Lord's coming, uh, His first coming. And then I'll be gone the last Sunday in December again with family over the holidays, and so Brent Van Sickle will be here with us to preach on the 31st of December. And then I'll be here for one Sunday in January. I know this is all like very confusing. It looks like I don't want to preach to you again, but I do. January 7th, I'll be here for one sermon. I'll preach. Uh, I don't know what yet. Uh, just a, a one-off from a text. And then uh, go to Brazil for two weeks. I'll be gone for two Sundays then. And then when I come back, we're going to jump into a minor prophet from the Old Testament. So uh, I'm leaning towards a book, but if you have a, a favorite minor prophet that you want me to think about preaching from, I'd be happy to hear that. So we come tonight to the end of this installment of prayer that God wants to hear. So the next time we come back on a Sunday night, which will be in January, actually, and I won't give you the rundown of why that is, but um, January will be the next time that we come together on a Sunday night that I'm preaching from a series, and I'll pick a different one. I don't know what yet on that. But I want to kind of draw this session of prayer God wants to hear to a close. I did this a few years ago and came back to it at the end of this summer and now into the fall, and I uh, want to... Um, come back this last time. The, the logic of the series has been that if uh, God has called us to pray and has to listen to our prayers, then certainly he's given us instruction about how he wants us to pray. And, and that means that there's prayers that are more or less pleasing to God. Um, he's told us how to pray. He's told us what should concern us in prayer. And specifically, he's given us examples of prayer. And so my thinking is if a, a prayer rises to the level of getting put in the Bible, God probably thinks pretty highly of that prayer and would like us to pray in similar fashion. And so of the hundreds of options, we have looked at places like Psalm 19, where the psalmist finishes up after the revelation of God and how it impacts him. Then he, he prays, Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the, the thoughts of my mind be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, we've gone to places like uh, Hannah's prayer in 2 Samuel 1 and considered a a prayer of exultant praise when God gives us something that we have been praying a long time about. We went to Jonah 2 and we saw Jonah in his desperation in the belly of the big fish and considered what prayer looks like in the depths of our uh, experience like that. And uh, we also have, have turned to 
different places like Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 19 and just seeing his desperation of a situation he can't change and how does he pray in those moments. We went to Ephesians 1 and we considered how does the resurrection of Jesus impact how we pray? How does it shape what we ask for before the throne of God? And tonight I want to consider what I think to be uh, probably of the greatest delight to our Lord. And I'm not sure that's a category I can define. Uh, but just as I think about God and our relationship to Him and, and how prayer um, helps us relate to God, I would think from God's perspective that this is the kind of prayer that might delight His heart the most. And that's prayers of godly sorrow. Prayers of, of confession and of repentance. One of the joys of uh, the ministry of the Word, which is the main part of my role as God's, as Christ's under-shepherd here in this church, is that often the, the work of digging into the Word corresponds to pastoral responsibility or especially to counseling issues. I've seen it again and again. And, and as God walks me through a text, He uses a truth in that text to, to help me understand or to help me bring to bear upon someone's heart. I had that experience very clearly in Pennsylvania. We were uh, walking through a, a series, of the topical series I had been assigned. And one of the things that was part of that series was true repentance. What does it look like to truly repent? And, and in God's kind providence, he brought me to a text in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, which I had been familiar with in some ways, but I didn't know it really well. As I started digging into that, in that process, there was a man in our church who, who was caught in uh, really awful sinfulness. And uh, as I, and I was very close to him, friends, like we were probably best of friends in that church family. And as I tried to, to press into his life and, and kind of pull back some layers and get, you know, hopefully bring him to the point of confession and repentance and turning from sin, I just got one roadblock after another, and this whole thing was everyone else's fault but his. Uh, and so then I came to this text, and I was so helped by how clear God's Word is. The letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He is writing to uh, restore, in some ways, the relationship that he has with them, uh, also to defend his ministry. And he had written him a previous hurtful letter, and he says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved by his letter, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then he goes on to describe godly grief. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. It was so helpful for me to see that, that godly sorrow, when, when you are struck by the reality of your sinfulness and you see it as God sees it, your reaction in repentance is fitting in this verse. You, you have an earnestness and a zeal to to clear your name and to own everything that you did in this and an eagerness to make things right. Well, that's what we see in David in Psalm 51. He, he has a sorrow that has been overwhelmingly directed to God. You know the story. He was sinfully absent from the battlefield in his uh, precarious position of 
of being away from the battle. He was tempted, and in that temptation, he pursued it and uh, pursued Bathsheba and committed adultery with her, and a child resulted, and so he brought Uriah back from the battlefield to try to cover his tracks. That didn't work, so he had Uriah put on the front lines, and then they pulled back from him, and Uriah was killed in battle, so now he's guilty of adultery and of lying and deceit and murder and a hundred other things as well, and it's a terrible situation. But as you read the narrative, until you get to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, you, you could see from David's perspective that in some ways he's kind of gotten away with it. And if not gotten away with it, he's at least gotten to the point where life can move on in light of it. And things can be as they are. Uh, in the context of uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you, you kind of sense that it's about a year of time between what happens in his sinfulness in chapter 11 and the confrontation by Nathan the prophet in chapter 12. And so David has lived with his unrepentant sinfulness for a long time. And if you took time later tonight, you could go to Psalm 32, which I think is a sister passage to Psalm 51. And it is the description by David of how miserable he was in that year when he refused to say what his sin was, when he refused to come clean before God. He says things like his bones wasted away and he was dried out before the Lord like on a hot summer day and he was groaning all day long and the hand of the Lord was upon him day and night and his strength was all dried up. In other words, he was miserable even though he thought in some way he had gotten away with his sinfulness. I think it's really easy for us, and this is what compelled me to come to this because I see it in my own heart. It's easy for, for us to, when things go wrong in life, like David had things going wrong for a year, and I am sure, we don't know, have record of this, but you know your own heart enough to know you probably could see this in David too. He probably had lots of excuses blaming other people for why things were not going well. Why life was so terrible for that year. It was Bathsheba's fault, or it was this pregnancy's fault, or it was Joab's fault, or it was his son's fault, or it was the, the fault of a mixed family with multiple marriages, or whatever it was. He had the finger pointed externally all the time. And I think it's really easy for us in Christian living to naturally, sinfully, look to everyone else as the problem and give ourselves a pass. And so when relationship tension rises and arguments with parents are common in our life or skirmishes in our marriage or difficulty in our relationship with our boss or other employees. And in those moments, we naturally pin the blame on others. And I can say that because that happened to me Friday morning as I was thinking about this text for tonight. I had a situation happen where I was like, this is not my fault. <laughs> and, and I got upset about it and a little bit mad and a little bit ticked. And I realized, oh, you, you're the problem, actually. Like this whole situation is not the problem. It's, it's actually you who need to confess and repent of your sinfulness. It's so easy to not do that. And so I want to encourage us tonight in Psalm 51 with a, a model of confession and of repentance. We often deal with our, our sins and the sins of our heart and life like a, a college student once dealt with his laundry. A, a freshman arrived on campus and uh, he you know, lost his, his laundry basket and it was time to do laundry and he had to get his stuff to the laundry room. And so he packed up all his dirty clothes inside of his biggest hoodie and you know, wrapped it all together so he could get it to the laundry room. And 
stuffed it in the washer all in one big clump because he didn't want to, you know, it was really dirty and nasty. He didn't want to pull out each piece in the laundry room and have everybody see it. So he just put it all in there as a, a big uh, bundle and started the wash and came back a little bit later and moved this big bundle of clothes from the wash to the dryer and, and it dried it. And then he came back a little while later and took this wrapped uh, sweatshirt full of all these clothes back to his room and he starts pulling them out and he realizes that nothing's clean, Right. Nothing got clean through that process. It got wet and it got dried, but it didn't get clean. And we like to do that with our sins. We, we like to deal with them in a, a, bondage de- a bundle deal, a package deal before the Lord. And we get really general and generic. And, and Lord, I'm sorry for all the sins I've committed today. Please cleanse me of those and help me sleep well. Amen. Good night. Right? I mean, that's kind of how we tend to do confession and repentance, to actually clean this big ball of clothes that freshman needed to take each piece out of his dirty laundry and put it in one by one into the wash, making sure it would get cleaned rightly. And so too do we need to do with our sinfulness, laying it before the Lord and asking for his forgiveness and his cleansing. David's prayer of repentance and confession is a helpful illustration of that. And what I think is so helpful about David's confession and repentance is because he was so deep in sin. And being so deep in sin, he saw how awful it is. And being so aware of how awful it is, he gives us a model of of, uh, running to the Lord and asking for cleansing and forgiveness and healing. Psalm 51, David writes and says this. I'll read the heading and then I'll read. The psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David models for us what godly 
sorrow produces out of us as we pray and ask God to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. I want to just point you to to five marks of this godly sorrow in this prayer of repentance. As David prayed, he was seeking God's merciful cleansing. So if if we're going to know whether or not we're actually uh, marked by godly sorrow and have a prayer of actual repentance, it will be marked by these things. These are the basics, all right? We could go a lot deeper in this psalm, but these are the basics. The first is that David was seeking God's merciful cleansing. He's obviously broken by his sinfulness. He had finally seen it for how ugly and evil it was before God and before others. And so he prays this prayer of confession and he names it what it is. He calls sin what it is and he repents of it. He turns from it. He wants no more to do with it. But you must know at the outset that he is praying as an expression of his desire to be mercifully cleansed. This is not a form of, of penitence where he's asking God to, to, through the prayer, somehow make up for his sin. He's not asking for a, a way for him to find a way out of this pit he's created by his sin. He's owning that he has sinned, and he's asking God to mercifully clean him up. He knows only God can get him out of the mess he has made. And, and that's true of adultery as it is of lying, as it is of pride, as it is of vanity, as it is of gluttony, as it is of gossip. That sin creates a pit that you in and of yourself find no way out of. God must cleanse you. He knows, David does, the steadfast love and abundant mercy of the Lord, and so he seeks God based on that reality. He asks God to cleanse him in light of that, and he Ask God to cleanse him completely through his mercy. So he says at the end of verse 2, or at the end of verse 1, into verse 2, blot out my transgressions. And then he says uh, in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And then the end of verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Notice he uses three different words to speak of his sin. And those are the, the three main Hebrew words to speak of our sinfulness against God. The transgression is a, a willful revolt against the a law given to us by God. And so he's asking God to expunge from his record, to to blot out these willful ways in which he has gone against God's clear command. And then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity is that which perverts your life. Sin enters in by your own doing and makes everything impure and iniquitous makes everything unclean. And so he asks God to wash him completely from that perversion that he's brought in by his own sinfulness. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. That's a a general word for sin that means to fall short or to miss the mark, to stumble along the way. It's not a mistake. It's not an error of judgment. It's a a trip up, a mess up. It's a intentional and and uh, falling away from what God has called you to do. It's a failure to live up to a set standard of conduct. And that pollutes David and corrupts David. And so he prays, God, mercifully cleanse me. Remove that from my heart. If that's going to be our prayers, we're going to see our sinfulness and, and plead with God for mercy to cleanse us. If that's going to be true, then we have to see the corrupting reality of our sinfulness, right? 
We have to be convinced that our sin is as bad as it is. We have to be aware that it's bringing into us a a spiritual cancer that will rot away at our core and do eternal damage. And we must know also that we have no hope of cleaning ourselves up. That we can't just pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, as it were, and and get rid of this sin in us. If we're going to pray the way David prays, we have to be convinced, as David was, that he has no hope in himself to cleanse himself from his sin. God must do this. And that's a key mark of godly sorrow. It is so caught with how weak and wicked my own heart is that it runs to a God of steadfast love and superabounding mercy, and it pleads with him to clean me up. David, as he prays out of godly sorrow, is also honest about sin's evil. That's in verses 3 through 6. He's honest about it. As he, he prays for cleansing, he also confesses how evil sin has been. He sees it for what it is, for how heinous and wicked it is before the Lord. And and I got to tell you, this is where it gets real for me. Step one, Mark one, is fairly understandable, right? We get that, I think, at least in our heads. Where it gets real for me is when I have to say before the Lord, I am a sinner in this way. When when I'm ready to stop giving myself a pass and, and to deal with my sin before the Lord and to ask Him to help me and to cleanse me and to forgive me and to renew me and to restore me, I have to be honest about what's really going on in my heart. Because if you're like me, I I like to create an alternate universe, an alternate reality in which, well, it's not really that. I mean, it's kind of that, but it's not really that. That wasn't really pride. And, And we create explanations for our sinfulness, which allows it room to grow. I saw a post on Twitter this week, which fit this so well. She said, it's difficult to be honest with yourself about the sins you aren't ready to look dead in the eye and kill because killing that sin means fighting it. And before you can fight it, you have to be able to name it. And in order to name it, you have to be willing to look yourself in the eye and say, I'm vain, I'm lustful, I'm wrathful, I'm gluttonous. Consider, however, that mentally creating an alternate reality where you're actually humble, pure, and self-controlled takes a lot of energy. Put that mental work into going to war with the sin instead. This is what David did. He confessed it as it was. He saw it for what it was. And that's the the liberating move he makes in this prayer. He repents of all that energy he put into making himself and his world be something different than it was. He had worked for a year to make himself look righteous and moral in front of his kingdom. He had worked for a year to cover his tracks and to hide his deception and to cover over his murder of Uriah. He had worked for a year to to make his name not have the, the the besmirching reality of adultery and a child out of that adultery. And he's finally, a year later, after God's confrontation through Nathan the prophet, willing to say before the Lord, I sinned against God. I was an adulterer before God. I am a murderer before God. I am a liar before God. I know my sin, he says, and it is ever 
before me, and God is just in punishing me, he essentially goes on to say. You were right in your judgment of me, David says. But then he backs the train all the way up past the station into the manufacturing plant. And he says this this train is flawed, not just because of what the train did, but because of how it was made. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. All the way back at my point of conception, I was brought forth into this world in sin. So I'm a sinner by nature is what he's saying. And he's already admitted he's a sinner by choice. In other words, he's he's owning before the Lord the vast reality of his corruption. And he says to the Lord, you have exposed that to me. You've made this known to me. You've taught me the truth about my inward parts. You've shown me the reality of my sinfulness. And through Nathan's confrontation, I want you to know, Lord, I agree with you. My sin is deep and it's before you and you alone. I've done evil in your sight. I got to tell you, if you're not going to get this honest with God and with yourself about your sin, you're not going to pray like this. If you're not willing to call your sin what it actually is before God and before your own your own eyes, your own heart, then you're not going to pray and say to the Lord, I know my sin and it's ever before me and I long for you to cleanse me. You must be honest as David was about your sin. And then David also, out of this godly sorrow, is longing for God's reformation. That's in verses 7 through 12. He's longing for God's reformation. All the realities of, of his life have been upheaved by his own sinfulness. And he is struggling through the reality of the consequence of his choice. That list you have before you is borrowed from John Phillips, a commentator on Psalms, and it is probably the most exhaustive exposition of sin's horror in Scripture. We see first in verse 7, sin's defilement. And this is in contrast to David praying, asking God to reform him, to reshape him. He knows he's been malformed by his sin. He's been misshapen by his own sinfulness. And now he's asking God to to do the work only God could do by his mercy to make that right. And so by what he asks of God to make right, we see what sin had done to make him wrong. Does that make sense? And so in verse 7, we see sin's defilement. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That means his sin had made him horribly dirty spiritually and every other way, circumstantially and relationally, he needed cleansed from his sinfulness. Verse 8, he speaks of sin's deafness. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. His sin had made him deaf to God and to the joy and the gladness of, of intimate fellowship with the God of heaven. He longs for the pain of his sin to be removed, for that barrier to be broken down. He longs to know that joyous song springing up from his soul again. And so he prays to God and asks God to let him hear again joy and gladness. And then verse 9, sin's disgrace. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Sin is shameful. It's not shameful because we live in a culture of, of honor and shame or because our missionaries serve in cultures where honor and shame are a big deal. No, sin is, in its very core, shameful. There, there's guilt associated and there's 
shame attached to our sinfulness. And you see this when a celebrity gets accused of whatever sin in our culture is no longer acceptable. And they get accused of that. And and when the paparazzi surround them to get their picture for tomorrow's headlines and, and today's web reports, they hide their face, right? They don't want their picture taken. They don't want to be known. They, they go clandestine and secret. They want to be kept out of the public spotlight because sin has in its own nature shame attached. It's disgraceful. And so David prays and says, Lord, I, I know my shame before you. You hide your face from my sin because it's evil and wicked. No longer, he prays, please, no longer hide your face from me. Verse 10, we see sin's damage. David's life is obviously in total shambles. He prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In other words, remake me from the very inner man out to to the very uh, innermost part of my being, my heart and my spirit. I'm a mess because of my sinfulness. And I need you to create me. And that's that word is the same one you find in Genesis 1 and 2 for God creating the world. Bara. He's, he's asking God to do a, a work only a powerful God like ours could do to remake the soul that's been left in shambles after sin. You see, David knew he was damaged goods, as it were. That his sin had laid him low in life and before the Lord. And he's asking God to bring glory out of the ashes. Then we see sin's doom in verse 11. When he prays, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We understand that in Christ we cannot be ultimately cast out of God's presence. But he's praying for as close as we can get to that experience of being away from God and away from the fellowship of His Spirit. David knew the outer edges of that horror and that doom through this sinful rebellion. He had had toyed with this by his actions and his cover-up, and his unrepentance. And he pleads with God to rescue him from that, to to keep him from that, to not cast him away. Numbers 12, the first part we see sin's depression. He asks God to restore the joy of his salvation. Sin is in itself depressing. It's a vacuum for your joy. It sucks it all up and keeps it from you. So much of our mental health issues in our culture and Nay, I even say within the church are related to our own sinfulness. And I don't, that's not a universal statement about all things. I'm just saying there's a lot of connection to our sinful heart and the guilt we carry and how that follows through then into our emotional state and our mental state as we deal with life. David expresses that here. He, he's a depressed man because he's a sinful man. And he pleads with God to restore to him his Joy, the joy of his salvation. And then we see sin's defeat in verse 12. Uphold me, he says, with a willing spirit. You could also interpret that uphold me with a spirit willing to obey. I think that's the heart of what David's praying for here. He's asking God to uphold him by his own merciful power so that David will not go into this kind of sinfulness again. Keep me from it. Defeat sin by helping me be obedient. Don't let me ever experience this again. David knew the thorough sinfulness of his sin, and so he 
from the depths of his sin pleads with the Lord to remake him and to reshape him and restore him. And this is, if you understand your sin, this is the kind of way you're going to pray to God. I've made a mess of things, Lord. My own life and heart are a mess. My own emotions are a mess. Remake me, reshape me, reform me by your kind mercy. And then we see he prays, committing himself to serve God once again in verses 13 to 17. He moves from the damage of sin and praying for God to reform him to now a commitment to serving God. Seeing the sinfulness of his sin and encouraged that God is going to remake him and cleanse him, he now says, I want to serve you. If you'll hear me and you'll answer me and you'll remake me, I want to be your servant, filled with your mercy and your grace to do your work. And especially, I want to help other sinners. Which if you know the depths of godly sorrow and and you pray like David prayed, this is your heart. You know what sinful damage and, and consequence looks like in your own heart and you want to help others with that so david prays and says lord help me be restored so that i can be a teacher of others who are in a similar spot to me and who to be a better spokesman of the merciful goodness of god than this man who had gone to the depths of his own rebellion against god but you must know it's not an offer by david where he's going to exchange his service for god for forgiveness from god He's not saying, Lord, if you'll do this, then I'll serve you, so do this because I'll serve you. That's not what he's saying. And we know that by how he speaks in verse 17. He says that no sacrifice I'm going to make is going to make this right. You're not going to be pleased with me bringing you a sacrifice that's going to expunge by my sacrifice all this sin guilt. No, you have to take that away. What's pleasing to you, the sacrifice you will not turn down is a broken and contrite heart. I remember as I was in college, I was friends with a, a young lady who had an art teacher who was her favorite teacher, whose favorite verse was Psalm 51, 17. And she came and spoke to me and, and told me this verse. I, I'm sure I had heard it, but I didn't remember hearing it at that time. It was my first awareness that this verse existed in the Scriptures. And what caught me by it was that I didn't know what contrite meant. Here I am in college, you know, supposed to be somewhat bright, and I have no idea what that word means. I'm like, what? Okay, a broken and what heart? It means a crushed heart. A crushed heart. And this is David, right? You just think of his experience. And this is exactly where he was at. Broken. His his pride completely sucked from his spiritual chest by the reality of his own choices and sinfulness. And now he, in full humility, crushed before the Lord, asked God to forgive him and to restore him. This is the same heart posture that should mark our confession and our repentance, being broken over our sin, producing in us a longing to be restored, and then being restored, longing to serve God by His grace. This is, if if you know the forgiveness of God, this is the mark of that forgiveness all throughout Scripture. It is being set on mission by God. Being given His commission to serve others as one forgiven now bringing that mercy and grace and forgiveness to others. This then leads to him desiring to worship God at the end, verses 18 and 19. He moves from the personal confession of sin at the beginning of the psalm to 
now a corporate concern at the end of the psalm. And this is especially fitting for David because he is a very public figure. He's the king of Israel. His sin is known not just between him and God or him and his wife or him and his family. It's him and his nation. And he's done a ton of damage to his nation, and he knows that. And as he confesses this before Nathan the prophet and before the Lord his God and before his nation, he now prays and longs for God to restore what he, by his sin, has broken for the people around him. And he asks God to do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of your holy city, Jerusalem. And do this so that your worship in your place, in your city, can thrive once again. In other words, what David longs for is for God to be worshipped as God should be worshipped. He, by his sin, has defamed the name of God. He has detracted from the, the glory of God in the lives and hearts of others. And now he prays, God, overcome that by your mercy. Restore your worship in your land among your people. Make your name great among your people once again. This is the culmination of all the other prayers, isn't it? This is the, the ribbon on top of the present, as it were. This is us longing for God to receive the worship He's due as He forgives sinners like us, restores us to service, builds up His church, and magnifies His name through worship to Him. So believer, how have you prayed recently about your sin? When's the last time you, before the Lord, specifically laid out a sinful heart issue between you and Him? When's the last time you owned it? And said, so God, I, I was proud when that happened. God, I, I was lust-filled. I, I have desires in my heart that I fed, which led to this, whatever it is. When's the last time in, in owning that before the Lord, then you saw it as God sees it and were honest with Him and with your own heart about what it really is, how heinous and evil it really is before God. And then cried to Him for mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. Because let's be honest, on this side of the cross, it's really easy to take grace for granted. It's really easy to think, you know what, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed, I'm good. Once in a while, God will show me I generally sin, I generally confess, and I move on and we're good. Believer, David lays before you the example of what it looks like to be humble and contrite, broken and crushed before the Lord. And, and you need not think long on any given day to get to that posture, do you? I've told you many times I have experiences from my high school and early college years which break me every time I think of sins I committed before the Lord and before others that humble me, and crush me. But I have stuff every day that humbles me and crushes me. Expressions of my sin which remains, which calls me up short before God. And if I didn't have the opportunity to go to God and be cleansed, 
I would be of all people most miserable, as would you. So part of resting and rejoicing in Christ, part of walking in grace is praying prayers like this, prayers of confession and repentance and knowing the goodness and the kindness of God to forgive, to restore, and to use you for his glory. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we praise you for how true your word is to our real lives. Thank you for David and using this man and his sinful rebellion against you to show us how horrible our own sins are. Father, forgive us for being outraged at all the wickedness in the world instead of being outraged at the sin which remains in our own heart. We pray that you would soften us and humble us and break us over our sin. And in so doing, Father, would you then bring quickly the healing salve of Jesus our Lord and bind up our wounds and heal all our spiritual diseases with Christ that we, knowing your forgiveness and your mercy, might then be useful in your gospel work in this world. We do long to be a church that's marked by humble confession and repentance and brokenness and contrition before you. And so we pray that you would make that happen among us, that you would mold our hearts that way. And Father, would you help us then to be those who worship you in spirit and truth and to lead others to do the same. Thank you for your work among us. May you be glorified as we enter into the week ahead of us. Help us, Father, to be eager and zealous to do the good works you've appointed beforehand for us to do. And help us to walk in purity of heart and of mind as we seek to love and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.